This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Tulsa got a visit this week from President Biden to mark the commemoration of the 100 years since the Tulsa race massacre. Biden spoke for about 40 minutes to about 120 people at the Greenwood Cultural Center, the first sitting president to visit the area on the anniversary of the massacre. Biden linked the massacre to the white supremacist movement in Charlottesville, Virginia, four years ago. Neva, what are your thoughts on the president's visit? Well, first of all, I mean, I think it is always uh, extremely noteworthy uh, to have a sitting president uh, uh, come to the state, uh, certainly in this instance, come to Tulsa to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the the Tulsa race massacre. So um, that's significant. I think even for uh, uh, folks, uh, uh, I I thought it was noteworthy that the chairman of the uh, Republican uh, party for Tulsa County uh, made the comment uh, and issued uh, uh, issued some social media uh, saying to the effect that uh, the office of the president deserves respect even when we disagree with the office holder and as a party we love uh, the United States and and wish success and and uh, that it's important to remember what the office of the presidency represents. That was the essence of her um, of her comments. And I think that does speak to the larger, I think, uh, uh, picture of what we saw on, on Tuesday with the uh, president coming to uh, Tulsa for this event. Ryan. Well, and you know, the president caps off a weekend of remembrance and, um, and reflection on mm-hmm. one of the most awful events in American history. And you, know, you had speakers that, were, that represented the civil rights icons of the past, the present, and you know, many folks that I'm sure that we'll see in the future uh, as leaders in the state of Oklahoma and perhaps the nation uh, in moving us forward. You know, there was a, a moment in the president's speech that I, I just want to quote because I think that it does reflect where we're at and where we need to go. He said, there's a greater recognition that for too long we've allowed a narrow, cramped view of the promise of this nation to fester. The view that America is a zero-sum game, that there's only one winner. If you succeed, I fail. If you get ahead, I fall behind. If you get a job, I lose mine. And maybe worst of all, if I hold you down, I lift myself up. Uh, Those were powerful words, and they were said in the context of the president telling a story that many Oklahomans until recently had not heard, the story of the Tulsa race massacre uh, and the the consequence of that. And the, the consequences of that, I think, were really reflected in a, a story uh, where a reporter had uncovered that Mayor Bynum uh, and his family had benefited for, uh, uh, from ownership of close to 1,000 enslaved people at one point. And they said, he said, you know, the Bynums have had since the 1600s, essentially, to build wealth and power and stability for their family. He said, my family, uh, he was a descendant of the Tulsa Race Massacre, had, you know, basically from 1865 until 1921. And so it really demonstrates that that horrible period of time, we're still living with ramifications of it today. The president telling that story, 
more Americans have heard it now, and I think that we can reflect on it and learn from it. And they even got a visit from Governor Stitt as well. They, he met with uh, the president in, in Tulsa as well. So it's not, it's not just a one-sided thing. Here. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, when we look at this visit, as tightly scripted as it was, I mean, the president coming to Tulsa, landing about 1 o'clock in the afternoon um, uh, at, the, uh, at the hangar where he made the first uh, welcome, uh, welcoming remarks and comments with the folks that were there in the receiving line, the, the mayor, the, the governor, uh, four of the uh, tribal chiefs uh, were there and other dignitaries. And I think as he went on, as you said, to the cultural center, not only to uh, take a short tour, but then to make this 40-minute uh, speech with the three known living um, survivors mm-hmm. uh, descend, uh, of the um, of the massacre, um, there on the front row. It, it certainly was a um, a historic moment, and I think uh, I think all of us can uh, uh, can ag- can agree with that point. Twenty five of the forty minutes I thought was interesting in his speech was really just a retelling of the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, many I think expected uh, that he would uh, it, perhaps comment on the the idea that there should be reparations. There was no endorsement of that. No comment whatsoever by the president on that. So that is uh, certainly one of those lingering issues that that uh, even uh, festered up during the commemoration. Unfortunately, uh, with uh, some of the events uh, being canceled uh, in in fairly short order. So um, I think I think that this was certainly something that uh, is historic. Certainly something that we'll see in the history books uh, and mm-hmm. uh, and mentioned for. Uh, you know, for all time. And I think the point that Ryan made about the, that Oklahomans are not aware and have not been aware of this, I think at least for the last 20 plus years, uh, it's not 100 years, but 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 uh, for several decades now, it, it, it is being taught in the schools. It is being talked about. It is part of, uh, of our history. And I think the awareness certainly uh, as, as uh, the outgrowth of this uh, commemoration uh, is even greater. The state Supreme Court strikes down Governor Stitt's plan to partially privatize Medicaid. Justices agreed with medical groups in their lawsuit, alleging the executive branch didn't have the legislative authority to implement the program known as Sooner Care. This comes as contracts have already been awarded and enrollment is slated to begin this fall. Ryan, what does this mean for the governor's plan? Well, that's a good question. I mean, so, you know, two of the Supreme Court justices that dissented in the case uh, or three of the justices that dissented, what they talked about was a piece of legislation that was passed at the end of the legislative session that they seemed to indicate recognized or at least warranted a hearing on whether or not this uh, Senate bill uh, would have changed the court's decision or, or their opinion in this matter. Did that Senate bill recognize the governor's authority and the health care authority by default uh, to be able to enact this uh, the system of managed care. So I think that that's kind of an un, you know an unresolved question. And you know, is the governor going to come back and you know do something like request a rehearing, mm-hmm. um, and so that the court can consider this? I don't know if that happens or not, but I do think that um, you know this this opinion, both in the four corners of the opinion itself, uh, has huge consequences uh, for Medicaid. And you know, somebody like myself who has been uh, skeptical of what managed care could do for the uh, for the state of Oklahoma. This is a this is a great win. I think it's a great it's a huge win for patients. It's a huge win for the folks that are you know right now enrolling in Medicaid for coverage that will start July one. That's incredibly exciting. It's a big win for providers. Um, I think looking outside of the four corners of the opinion, 
uh, you know, what does this mean for administrative law? What does this mean for things like agency discretion moving forward? Uh, we've seen uh, a lot of, I mean, this is the constitutional law geeks uh, territory <laughs> here because in the last several years, especially with the state administration's uh, assertion of greater executive authority, um, you know, we have, we've really seen uh, a real push and pull struggle between uh, the executive branch and the legislative branch. The, you know, here the, uh, uh, the, the courts ostensibly came down on the side of the legislative branch. And, you know, there's, there's, I think there's some question now as to, you know, how that plays out. I mean, you got these three, these three groups fighting with each other for power and control, and the governor has, you know, kind of lost again. Neva. Well, it is interesting. I mean, when you talk about the decision, it was 6-3. And mm-hmm. I mean, the six clearly said that they believe that the health care, the actions of the health care authority are invalid under Oklahoma law. So there are so many questions. I mean, even the governor's office, I think, when asked, uh, the, the basic statement was something to the effect that they're still sorting through and trying to uh, trying to determine and do a legal analysis themselves on what this really means. And it comes right on the heels of what happened in the legislature. Senate Bill 131, mm-hmm. a lot of controversy. Uh, it, it went all the way to the last week with trying to decide and watch to see what the governor would do. He decided not to try to, he didn't sign it. Uh, the, the votes weren't there to override uh, a veto, uh, clearly. So there was a lot of drama b- behind this. And, and clearly the difference between the House and the Senate in their view of what managed care or who should be in charge of managed care look like? I mean, the House uh, had had a strong uh, a majority uh, feeling that uh, it should be done by the health care authority, uh, and that uh, they should they should be be the ones charged to kind of reinvent this and and have a different look. Where you had the Senate uh, going the other direction, uh, wanting uh, the basically the governor's uh, the governor's. Uh, a proposal of the the four uh, entities uh, companies that would be responsible and three I think on on the dental side so there it, it's so mucked up now I think the you know there's a lot of questions is there a sp- another special session looming uh, we know there's at least one this fall to deal with finalizing redistricting so uh, it really when I think folks were leaving the capital leaving the uh, thinking that it was going to be a quiet summer not a not a political <laughs> summer with the campaign uh, going on now have seen this erupt and just become another major issue and something that has to be resolved quickly because as you say the implications with with the enrollment opening up July 1 another 200,000 potential uh, folks uh, uh, being able eligible to uh, uh, to sign up uh, based on the Medicaid expansion it just opens up uh, Pandora's box literally to see uh, where we're going to go from here well and the attitude in the legislature when, when the senators were leaving uh, you know, after and, and House members were leaving after they passed Senate Bill 131. That Senate bill, uh, even the Senate author, Senator McCourtney, says, you know, you can read that and, and seem like it is um, giving the governor this authority or recognizing the governor's authority to do this. And what he said is that wasn't our intent at all. You know, we didn't mean to create legislative uh, authority through this Senate bill where the court previously said it didn't exist. So mm-hmm. it's almost like if the, if the governor's office, by not vetoing this bill and letting it go into effect, you know, it's, you know, the, the whole, you know, let them score the touchdown so you get more time back uh, left on the clock for your play. And, and I think that there's, you know, maybe have been some strategy in not vetoing it because that Senate bill does seem to recognize the governor's authority in that. And I think that there's an argument that, uh, that they can bring back up. I think that, um, that's a that's a tough argument to make, but it, it definitely opens the door where the court seemed to shut it. I think that lawmakers thought that 
bypassing that bill. They may have just mooted the thing out. They're ready to walk out and have it behind them. Well, I, I don't know that they thought it was behind them because I think even Senate uh, Pro Tem Treat um, made comments to suggest that there was still more more work to be done. I mean, that this was uh, basically that Senate Bill 1, uh, 131 had become a, a good compromise, which mean, meant uh, uh, that uh, basically everyone went away unhappy yes, and dissatisfied. Right. Yeah. 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 And so uh, it, it, it leaves a lot of questions that, that have to be resolved. They're not just questions that someone would like to see resolved. They are have to issues that at least have to be clarified at some point as they start to con- as they start to sort this out. As a constitutional law geek, is it possible for the legislature to give its approval after the executive branch has already made its move to do things? I mean, th- I think that that's a good question. Is that's you know, did question for the judges? Yeah, I mean, I think decide. that that's 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 a good question for the courts. Is you know, is this uh, you know because what they found in this case was that the healthcare authority did not have the legislative authority to do this. I mean, the, the court went into a discussion about uh, the promulgation of rules on, into how to do it, um, but they didn't even have to get there because at the outset they said there's no legislative authority for them to even create these rules to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, you know, do you go back in time and, and say that those are now you know valid? Because the court has said that those contracts are essentially null and void, right. um, that, that there's no authority to enter into them, and so they, they never existed to begin with. Uh, so... Even if even if they come back and say that now the healthcare authority has this power, I would expect that there's probably uh, a new round of RFP. I mean, you'd start that process all over again uh, if you're the governor and you're trying to move towards managed care. The 2021 legislative session did come to an end last week. It's actually a day earlier than it was constitutionally required. It came shortly after passing a budget for the 2022 fiscal year including budget increases for many state agencies, as well as cuts to personal and income tax rates. Neva, how would you rate the session? I think you rate the session an A, and I think that's pretty extraordinary given the fact that we've had some very rough sessions uh, uh, in the last, uh, and certainly in the last five or 10 years. But even, I think, Republicans' uh, leadership uh, on both sides of the aisle, uh, House and Senate, both chambers, uh, came away saying that this was the most productive session that they'd seen in their time in the legislature. And I think that uh, I think that was a general sentiment among most Republicans. I mean, there were some significant um, pieces of legislation. And, and as the speaker said himself, I mean, you often go into a session and you think if you can get two or three major things accomplished, that's, that's really extraordinary. Uh, in this instance, uh, the, you have uh, anywhere from six to 10 fairly major accomplishments that Republicans are going to tout, not only uh, coming out of session, but as they go into their campaign season uh, next, next year, because these are things that the, the voters, uh, that the citizens of Oklahoma uh, largely were strongly in favor of, had wanted to see in some instances for a long time and finally saw come to fruition. So I, I think that uh, I think that this is one of those times when we can legitimately applaud the efforts of the legislature. It was it was a session where we didn't see a lot of acrimony. It was a session where everyone was willing to uh, engage in, in the, the conversation, the House, the Senate, the governor and his team. That's, that's good. That's good for the state. It's good for uh, getting good legislation through the process. And I think while Democrats probably would argue <laughs> a different side of this, I think uh, I think that's the uh, upshot uh, leaving this legislative session. Ryan. Well, you know, Neva's right. I mean, Democrats are going to point to the you know, almost $400 million in permanent loss of revenue that we're going to realize as a result of these tax cuts. They're going to point to the 
huge amount of money that we put into the rainy day fund whenever there are still needs for investment in core services. And I think that those are all fair points. Uh, you know, I think that um, you, you had a legislative agenda, uh, you know, that was, I think, missing last year. We, we didn't really see a, a real cohesive agenda uh, from what Republicans or the governor wanted to do. And I think that that kind of led to a train wreck at the end of session. And so you, you, start, you started off watching Republican leaders in the House talking about rural broadband. You had uh, uh, Republican leaders in the Senate, uh, you, know, uh, you know, saying that they weren't necessarily interested in, in tax cuts, but everybody got there at some point. There were huge pieces of marijuana legislation that were passed with bipartisan support. You know, folks like you know, Senator Zach Taylor and Senator Lee Wright, Representative Fettgetter and Leader Eccles did a really big job of, of moving some important marijuana reforms across the medical marijuana reforms across the finish line that will ultimately be better for the industry and for patients in Oklahoma. Those are tough bills. You know, I visited with Senator Taylor from Seminole. You know, we're, we're both from Seminole. And he, uh, he said, you know, I'm, I'm used to having issues up here that have two sides. So with marijuana, there's always five sides. Uh, <laughs> and he said, it's tough. And it's, it's, so those are really hard bills to carry. Um, there's still a lot that needs to be done on that front. But, um, you know, that's, we're going to see some big changes there. Uh, and then one of the real, I think, disappointments uh, is the lack of criminal justice reform movement we saw uh, this legislative session. You know, criminal justice reform has been one of the, the highlight topics for lawmakers for years now. Uh, and it was really on the back burner this session. And, you know, there was uh, early legislation that would have done sentence enhancements uh, similar to what we saw at state question. That died early in session. There was some important legislation dealing with medical parole that passed. But criminal justice reform that had been a highlight of many previous sessions was really, you know, not, not present this cap at this uh, session. And I think that was because we saw such a focus on education reform. I mean, where we saw these uh, very major things happen, not only increase in funding for, uh, for education, but the fact that there were uh, increased transfer opportunities that came uh, as a result of uh, legislation, the uh, Opportunity Scholarship Fund, the cap was increased, something that Republicans have uh, been working for for quite some time. Um, and I think that uh, the fact that that we did see not only the reduction in the personal and corporate income taxes, but we saw nearly a billion dollars in savings uh, uh, put away, knowing that uh, there are so many big ticket items uh, looming down the road. We don't know as we deal with Medicaid expansion, we deal with all of uh, uh, the other big items that could come down the road. We have to be prepared as a state not to uh, be in a, in a crisis situation, and this, this puts us in a very good place. And I think uh, it's a responsible way for the legislature to uh, to act. Speaking of Medicaid expansion, uh, nearly a year after getting support from Oklahoma voters, it went online June 1st. The program brings medical coverage to about 200,000 low-income Oklahomans. Ryan, what are your thoughts on the final implement implementation of Medicaid expansion? Well, you know, leaving aside any sort of you know potential hiccups we're going to see as a result of um, the interruption in a move mm -hmm. to managed care. Uh, yeah, I think that this is a wonderful, wonderful month that we're in right now. The number of Oklahomans that are able to to go online, and I, I encourage you to go online, fill it out. You can you can do it by mail. You can do it in person. Get your application in because you get your application in July one. Your your coverage can become effective mm -hmm. July one, and you know having healthcare coverage, uh, you know, ought, ought not be. Uh, something you have by accident. It ought to be a right. Uh, and this doesn't get us to universal coverage in, in Oklahoma by, by any means. But the fact that over 200,000 of our neighbors, uh, you know, beginning on July 1, are going to have some security, you know, knowing that if, if they get sick, if they get an illness, if they get an injured, or if their family members are going through, through, uh, through something, 
that they have insurance that will allow them to go to providers that will allow them to uh, seek treatment uh, without you know choosing between you know food and medicine between bankruptcy and and treatment um, and that's what too many Oklahomans have been facing for for far too long uh, frankly the the fact that we're doing this July 1 2021 uh, instead of July 1 you know 2016 2015 um, or, or earlier uh, you know to me uh, is is a, a real uh, mark against Oklahoma. Uh, we want to be a top 10 state. We should have done this a long time ago, but it's exciting that it's it's finally happening now. Neva. Well, and and along with being a top 10 state, we have to look at what the price tag is associated with all of this, and that is part of the conversation. I mean, when we look at the expansion, Medicaid expansion, it will cost roughly, the estimate is about $1.3 billion, I believe. Well, 90% of that, the federal government's picking up the tab right now, but that may not always be the case. And if that, if that proves uh, to be something that changes down the road, that is certainly going to be highly impacting on the state budget. So I think this is something that while uh, the voters of Oklahoma um, made their voice heard, uh, Medicaid expansion is a reality. It is now uh, it, it becoming uh, uh, something that, as Brian says, uh, people can apply for. If they don't apply before July 1, they can apply after July 1, and they'll still automatically be enrolled. Now, I think the big question, as we've talked about earlier uh, in the show, is the fact that this traditional plan that they're enrolling in is only until October 1, or at least that was... Uh, um, the way it was framed up. So how that transition to the managed care model, the sooner select model will be, uh, those are the details as we add these additional folks to the, uh, uh, to the enrollment uh, will have to be, those are the answers that everyone will be looking for. MySoonerCare.org, folks that want to go get enrolled or know people that need to get enrolled, MySoonerCare.org. Uh, and, you know, that, 90, that you know, $1.3 billion cost, 90% comes from the federal government. Those are all dollars that are going to be coming into Oklahoma communities. I mean, and, and you know, the savings to the state. We're going to see, uh, you know, Medicaid dollars uh, potentially covering people in uh, DOC custody. I mean, we're going to, or in county jail custody, um, you know, taking some of that burden off of them. Um, and there was a push by rural hospitals. And rural hospitals, especially. I mean, if, if you want to keep those rural hospitals open, you got to be able to pay those providers. Providers need to see people that have coverage. And this is, this is a huge lifeline to, to rural health. State Treasurer Randy McDaniel says he won't be running for a second term. And McDaniel says he wants to spend more time with his family. He announced his decision on Tuesday to give enough time for others to launch a statewide campaign for the position. So, Neva, what do you think? of Will this be a competitive race for the seat? Absolutely. When you have an open seat, uh, I think we have every expectation it's going to be competitive uh, on both sides, potentially. I think Republicans, there'll be a number of folks look at it. Uh, and anytime you have an open seat, that's something I think that, uh, that the Democrats are going to take a look at and see that as maybe a, a little better competitive opportunity on a statewide race. But, you know, I think, first of all, I mean, you have to look at uh, uh, Randy McDaniel's career of public service. It's been exemplary. Even the one term as the state treasurer, uh, he has done, you know, he's done some amazing things. I mean, in terms of uh, overseeing the consolidation of the state bond financing operations, he's uh, he's certainly been uh, uh, at the forefront on uh, seeing the growth of the uh, Oklahoma 529 savings uh, fund uh, that is uh, very popular uh, with Oklahomans. The Oklahoma Stable, which is a savings uh, investment program that really uh, the legislature went on to approve a state income tax deduction for these, uh, uh, for these which 
are really, um, I think, deal primarily with people with disabilities. So, you know, he's he's been all, you know, he's been all over in terms of being innovative uh, and and operating an office with great efficiency. Now he's at a point, he says, uh, in life where, I mean, he's got two children in middle school. He wants to spend more time uh, on the family side. Certainly understandable. We've seen public officials do that in the past. He had 12 years in the legislature prior to the four that he will complete as state treasurer. So 16 years is a, is a, is a, is a significant part of your uh, uh, career uh, time. And I think that um, I, th- I think that as Republicans start to look at uh, the field of who may run, I think we'll see again. I think we'll see a lot of activity during the summer, a lot of folks assessing the race, uh, and then it will be who uh, who feels their position to take that challenge on. And as we've talked about many many times, uh, these statewide. Uh, these statewide campaigns are very expensive. They're very time-consuming, 77 counties, uh, a lot of activity, primaries that are very competitive. And so I think we'll, we'll, uh, we'll wait and see what uh, uh, begins to unfold in terms of the list of names out there in the next uh, month or two. Ryan. You know, Randy McDaniel's one of the most popular politicians that Oklahomans have never heard of. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, just, you know, you know, won this race with, with overwhelming uh, support from the voters, uh, you know, enjoy 12 years in the state legislature. Did you ever work uh, with him? You know, I, was say, I had the privilege of serving with yeah. Representative or Treasurer McDaniel, and you know, he's one of the, the nicest, most unassuming, uh, sincere guys that you're going to meet. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, that may be, you know, why he's been so good at the Treasurer's office. I mean, you don't hear a lot out of the Treasurer's office precisely because he's just doing his job That's and he true. keeps his head down. He's, you know, he's not running out in front of all the cameras and, but he's, he's used that post to continue the work of predecessors in that job. That the role of treasurer in the state of Oklahoma is oftentimes, you know, what the office holder makes of it. Um, and I mean, you saw, you've seen very different models of, of straight uh, state treasurer from you know, the, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the technocrats like, you know, uh, treasurer McDaniel and Robert Butkin uh, to the political advisors like Scott Meacham. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, those are those are folks that have kind of used that position and, and governors have relied on that position, you know, based on who's there. And so that's, um, uh, I, I think that it doesn't surprise me at all. As somebody who has two young kids himself, I can't imagine, uh, you know, punishing myself and my family with a, a statewide campaign. Yeah. Um, and so he, if, he, if he put his name on the ballot, He'd win. Uh, I don't think there's any question to that. It's just you know, this is him just hanging it up for, and, and maybe just for a bit, uh, because here's here's somebody who not only himself but his family is really committed to Oklahoma and public service. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if we see Treasurer McDaniel, you know, back on the political map at some point. I think you're exactly right, and I think the fact that you, as you say, I mean, he ran ran for statewide office, won all 77 counties, got 72 percent of the vote. I mean, those numbers are extraordinary. And I think the thing I always remember about his legislative career was uh, before he uh, termed out, he was the national legislator of the year by a group called ALEC, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and they really uh, focused on the fact that he had done such a significant effort to strengthen the state's retirement systems in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's been he's been at the forefront, been successful uh, at uh, every turn in his uh, in his public service career. And I think you're right, Ryan. He's certainly a young enough uh, man that uh, he could look at more public service down the road. And Eva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. And programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. 
Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.